Our sermon series is themed Longing for Renewal, which I do think is the theme of Zechariah in terms of at least the perspective of the people to whom he's speaking, to whom the Lord is speaking through him. He's a prophet of God. They're longing for renewal. And today, we're going to be looking at a passage in which I've titled the sermon, Longing for Renewed Peace. And as Justin just prayed, um, certainly we, we are in the midst of an, another week in the life of our, our city, our experience in which uh, we're very acutely aware of the lack of peace. Uh, we're very acutely aware of just the tragedy of our world, the injustices of our world, the inequities of our world, the, um, just the brokenness of it all. And I, and I, and I, 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 I mean, I asked this, I'll ask this, I want you to think about it. I, I, it's a silly question in that I already know the answer to the question, but are you longing for peace? Are you longing for peace? Does a week like this, on top of a year like this, on top of a lifetime like this, cause you to, to just lament and pause and say, how long, O Lord? How long? You know, we're just saying, I will wait for you. We're waiting for him, right? We're waiting for renewal. We're waiting for a return we're waiting, we're waiting for, for this world to be upended and all the brokenness to be put back together. How long, oh Lord, do you feel that burden in your heart? I'm sure we do. We always will until he comes. And sometimes we're just more aware of it than other times. As we talked about last week, certainly the people of Israel at the time that Zechariah is prophesying to them are feeling that burden as well. Uh, we're, we're just about 520, 519 BC. They've, they've just come back from their exile. They've been in Babylonian and, and Persian captivity for 70 years. They've been allowed to come back home to Jerusalem under a new king's reign, Darius. Uh, the Persian king has allowed them to go home and, and allowed them to rebuild the temple. So they, they go, but they're just they're still sort of stuck in this discouraging period of time because not everybody wanted to come back. And so they've got this conflict within themselves and, and, and they're, they're, there's a drought and so there's famine, there's, there's a lack of money, there's a lack of, of willpower and desire to focus on rebuilding the temple because people are just struggling to build their own homes and take care of their own families and they're being taxed heavily because they're still even though they're free at home, they're still under the rule of another foreign empire. And armies are trotting through their backyard, patrolling. I mean, they're just in a bad place. Even though they're in a place where there's a lot of hope for renewal, they're not seeing it yet. And you know, there's few things that are more discouraging than waiting on the Lord waiting on the Lord, when, when everything else around you 
just sort of seems to be, feels like it's aimed threateningly at you. It reminds me of Psalm 73. You know, you're waiting on the Lord and everything just feels like it's aimed threateningly at you. And you look at the, you look at the, the wicked in the world, you look at the, the corrupt, and they seem to be fine. They seem to be prospering, they seem to be at peace. Psalm 73 is a, is a psalm that I personally love deeply because there's this, there's this uh, reckoning with that reality. Like, I'm waiting on you, Lord. I know you're good. I believe that in my brain, but in my heart of hearts, I'm, I'm looking out and I'm seeing the prosperity of the wicked and I'm wondering, why are they so comfortable? Listen to what the psalmist says here. He says, truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to believe what I just said about God being good. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat. They're sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I think that's the way Israel's feeling right now. I know God is good, but look at the, the prosperity of the Persians still. Look at the prosperity of the wicked. Discouragement. So what would God do? That's what Zechariah is appearing was about, right? Zechariah has come to bring to them the message from God. This is what I will do. And remember, he's called them first to repentance. He says, return to me. Don't just return to Jerusalem. Don't just return to religious life. Don't just return to rebuilding a temple. No, it's relational. Turn to me, God says. That's, that's the, the heart of repentance. Come to me and I then will come to you. And so they've heard that now from Zechariah in the first six verses of this book. Now, will he give them a word of hope for the future? It's now, as we turn to verse 7, the night of February 15th in the year 519 BC. The first six verses was three months ago when God had called them to repentance the text now moves to three months later, and Zechariah gets from God what, what we call the night visions. And these visions will run from here into chapter 6 of this book. Now, we're not sure if these night visions all occurred on one night or whether they were given over a series of nights. Most scholars seem to think it was probably over one night, but we don't know that. Here's what we do know. We know this. The visions were meant to resonate deeply with the people. They were meant to, to, to just kind of meet them right where they're at and speak a word of hope 
to these returned exiles in Jerusalem. These visions, in other words, are what they were waiting to hear. This is what they were looking for, a word from God, hope, hope, and a glimpse into their future. Now remember, Zechariah had already said, look, you're, you're not ready for this. God through Zechariah said, you're not ready for this until you return to me. You know, not that they had to earn a place with God, but, but their hearts had to be turned towards him, right? They, you you got to just look to me. And it seems that they've done that at this point, three months later. And so God brings them these visions, telling them of the life to come as they return to him, and more importantly, as he returns to them. So look at with, with me at the text, Zechariah 1, starting verse 7. This is the vision, the first of them, I should say. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. And so the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Before I go any further, let me, let me just acknowledge something. As we read prophetic texts like this, you, you read these, these pictures of visions and there's all this symbolism, right? And there's this sort of almost poetry to it all. I know for some of us, this is hard stuff to sort out. Maybe you read, you read texts like this in Scripture and you, you really just don't know what to do with it. If you're like me, this is, this is kind of the way I lean too, I really prefer the straightforward logical arguments of a guy like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, right? Just, just tell me what's going on, right? Just lay it out for me. Give me a logical argument. Give me something I can hang my hat on, right? And yet there are other people... And I would, I would say uh, my wife and I are very different in this regard. Some people love to go to the art gallery and just look at the pictures. 
right? Just look at the, and, 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 they, and you sit there, and if you're like me, you look at the picture and you think, tree, horse, waterfall, right? But somebody else will look and they'll, and they'll go, oh, look at, the, look, at, look at what this is saying to us, you know? Um, prophetic writing is sort of like that. If you're a person who likes to, to look at the pictures in the art gallery and, and just it speaks meaning to you, you probably love passages like this. If you're not, you need a little help. You need a, an, like a, an art expert to come alongside and say, this is what this means. This is what the symbolism looks like. I'm no art expert, but I am here to try to do that a little bit this morning for those of us who are, who are not sure what we just read, all right? But I want you to get that mental image. Think about what was just read, right? You've got, the, you've got this myrtle tree uh, patch growing down in, in the glen, and you've got these horses in there, and the, and the man on the red horse and you've got this interpreting angel who's explaining to Zechariah what he's seeing and what he's hearing and what's being said. Think, just get that image in your mind the best that you can. And, uh, and I, wanna, I want us to walk through it and, and see if we can pull out some, some beautiful imagery here. And, and why, by the way, does God speak like this to us sometimes? If you're an art lover, you, you don't have to ask that question. But for the rest of us, why, why does he sometimes speak to us like this? One, one uh, commentator said this. I thought it was really good. He says, because sometimes it takes a picture like this to help you fully comprehend the place in which you live this Christian life in the here and now. Sometimes you need a, a, a picture because straightforward words would scarcely grab your imagination the way a picture grips your imagination and reveals or unveils. That's what prophecy does. It's an unveiling, unveils to you things. This is, this is important. Listen, things as they really are. You need sometimes an imagination to be able to fully grasp the reality of what things are really like. And that's what is happening here. There is an unveiling happening here for Zechariah to show the people of Israel what's really going on behind the curtain, the invisible realm, the, way, the place in which God dwells and is with them. So let's look at the picture together. The first important element of the picture is the myrtle trees. Now, myrtle trees are, 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 are likely meant to represent Israel. Why? Well, a myrtle tree is a, is a small little evergreen tree. It does not grow to be very tall. It has these dark leaves on it. It is evergreen. It always stays green. And it has these little white flowers that grow in these like star-like clusters. And these are flowers that emit a very strong, fragrant aroma when they're crushed. So you get this picture of these these little evergreen trees, and the fact that they're evergreen, I think, illustrates the staying power of Israel throughout history. God's people are small, right? God's people are, 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 are crushed, but when they're crushed in their affliction, there's an aroma that's pleasing to God. There's a, there's a beauty in the crushing of the smallness of the people of God, but there's, they're, they last. They're always green, they're always green. I also want you to notice that there are other trees that grow in the region. There are strong trees that grow throughout Israel and the Middle East there. Things like 
um, oak trees or things like cedar trees. And it's of note that God points not to the big, strong trees, but to these little myrtle trees. Second important detail is that Zechariah notes that these myrtle trees are, it says here in, the, in our version, the ESV, in the glen. Other translations put it like this. They're in a ravine, or they're in the bottom, or they're in the depth, or it's a, it's a low, narrow valley. So the idea is this, this little patch of green trees is growing in a very low and deep place. This is certainly pointing to the low estate of the Jewish people at the time of this vision. This ravine, literally the deep, this, this imagery is often used in the Old Testament as a picture of darkness. It's often used in the Old Testament as a picture of chaos and danger. It, we even see that picture in the very opening verses of Scripture as the Spirit of God, as he's, before he speaks words of creation into existence, the Spirit is hovering over the deep, over the darkness, right? There's just, it's sort of this picture of chaos. And here this little myrtle tree patch is growing in this place. This is evocative of Isaiah chapter 55. And I want you to remember, if you were here last week, we looked at Isaiah 55. That's where, that's where we were told that when we, when we come to the Lord, when we, we turn to him in, in repentance, that he pardons us abundantly. That his grace for us is unmatchable, right? And the reason why he's like that, when we couldn't fathom why a God would pardon so abundantly messed up sinful people like us, it's because he's not like us. His ways are not our ways. Remember that passage that was so encouraging to look at? Well, just a few verses later in that same chapter, Isaiah 55, you get this picture of myrtle trees emerging out of the desert as the renewing, uh, forgiving, abundantly pardoning love of God takes its root, its grip over the people of God. You get this, this image there of, of myrtle trees uh, sprouting up in the desert. This is evocative of that same image. It's a beautiful picture. Yes, you're in a low place. Yes, you're in the desert. Yes, it's chaotic all around you, but here you sprout, ever alive, Israel. The third important element is the horses. Now, horses throughout the Old Testament, throughout the ancient Near East, are always symbols of military might and battle. Horses are instruments of an army. And so here we see these armies of horses. There's an there's a assumption that they have riders on them, and they're down within the myrtle trees. These are heavenly armies. They are armies of angels. And the image is that these armies of angels are in your midst, Israel. They're with you. Remember the words of the Lord in the opening verses of Zechariah. Return to me and I will return to you. There's a picture here of the Lord returning to his people. So Zechariah sees this and he, and he asks the interpreting angel who's standing next to him, what does this mean? Look again at the text. Look at verse 9. I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And then in verse 10, 
We, don't, we see not the interpreting angel who's standing next to Zechariah begin to speak, but the, the man who is on the red horse actually begins to speak. He actually gives the answer. The man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are the ones, these are they, I should say, whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Now, I think this is like Psalm 73, which I opened up with a little bit earlier. The, these, these angel armies have patrolled the earth. and They said, look, there's peace out there. There's rest out there. Is that really what's going on, though? Yes and no. If from a Persian's perspective, their empire has dominated the world. In that sense, there's a, there's a sort of a period of peace. Everybody's under Persian control. There's no enemies rising up to challenge the Persian empire's strength. So for them, they're very much at peace. They're very comfortable in their current position. If you're in Israel, though, you're thinking, this is not peace for us. It's oppression. It's discouragement. And so you have these horses say, yeah, we've patrolled the earth. The Persians have dominated the world. They've put down their enemies. There's relative peace, and yet Israel is oppressed and discouraged. And so the next important element of the vision comes in the, the next verse, verse 12. This angel of the Lord, this one on the red horse says, Oh Lord, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah on which you've been angry these 70 years? This angel of the Lord becomes an intercessor for the people and pleads out their cause. How long, O oh Lord? Look at the peace and the prosperity of the wicked. Look at the, the devastation and discouragement of, 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 of your people, God. How long? Verse 13, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Here we have another really beautiful image. The angel of the Lord is interceding with the Father. How long? How long? You get the sense that the angel of the Lord is, is like, it's like he can't wait to just go do something about this. Unleash these horses. Let's go, right? How long? Show mercy. He intercedes. And then we don't get what he hears back from the Father, but we know that he turns now and speaks what he's heard in their gracious words, their comforting words. And that leads us to the most important element of the picture. Who's this angel of the Lord who's seated on the red horse? Who's this one who intercedes for the people of God? We're told in verse 11, he is the angel of the Lord. And this brings up an entirely new dimension of imagery. The appearance of the angel of the Lord is, is somewhat regular throughout the Old Testament. He appears at strategic points, in fact, throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you just a few examples. In Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord appears and promises the birth of Ishmael to Hagar. It's the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22 who speaks to Abraham up on the altar as he's ready to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And the angel declares, God will provide a better sacrifice. 
It's the angel of the Lord in Exodus chapter 3 who appears to Moses in the burning bush and declares this, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's the angel of the Lord in Judges chapter 2 who speaks to Israel and says, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. It's likely the angel of the Lord who appears in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and dances with them as King Nebuchadnezzar seeks to execute them, but they come out of the furnace not only unscathed, but not even the smell of smoke on their clothes. Who is this angel of the Lord? It's an interesting picture. Every time you look and you see throughout the Old Testament these these manifestations of the angel of the Lord, you have this, this sort of interesting paradox. On the one hand, angel means messenger. This is a messenger of the Lord who speaks the word of God to his people, but is also addressed by those same people as the Lord. There's a a distinct relationship between the angel of the Lord and the Father with whom he speaks, and at the same time, there's an identity uh, equality there in that he's also addressed as the Lord. Who could this be? Well, we now know, we now believe strongly as New Testament Christians that the angel of the Lord are Old Testament pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. So who is this man on the red horse who leads his angel armies amongst the people of God in the midst of the desert, who intercedes on their behalf? How long, O Lord, until you have peace? When his father speaks to him, he turns and speaks words of comfort to his people. What does he say? Verse Verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said this, cry out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. The first thing he speaks is his jealous love for his people. I know what you've been through. I know how you've been abused and molested. I know how you've been mistreated. You are my bride, and I'm jealous for you. My love for you is, is it, it's just, it just it's, it's welled up in, in, a, in a righteous jealousy because I know how you've been threatened and you belong to me. You're my people. I'm jealous for you. Secondly, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was a little bit angry, they furthered the disaster. I am angry with the nations who have oppressed you. I was, yes, angry with you. I, yes, gave them authority to conquer you, to take you into exile. They were instruments on my behalf to execute my sovereign will over the earth and over my people, but they're still responsible because they took what I had allowed them to do and they acted arrogantly in it. They misused and abused you beyond any authority that I would give to them, and therefore, they made it worse. So you get a picture here of God's sovereignty and human responsibility coexisting at the same time, and God is righteously angry at the one who has molested his bride. And 
And thirdly, therefore, verse 16, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. That was an important phrase because when, when the city was actually uh, assigned to judgment for their forefathers before the exile, 70 years earlier, it was, it was the measuring line of God that went out over the city to measure the, 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 the distance of his judgment, that it would lay the city to waste. And now he says that measuring line is coming back, but now it's coming back as an instrument of building and healing. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is the saving purpose of the Lord. I have, had, I, I have mercy on you. I have not forgotten you. You are my beloved bride. I am angry with those who have oppressed you. I will judge that sin and I will bring mercy. I will bring blessing. You will overflow again. In other words, in the midst of discouragement, Israel, in the midst of discouragement, people of God, look up and see things the way they really are. You might look out and say, Lord, how long? And you might have legitimate reason to, to see all this stuff going bad in the world and, and, and legitimately cry out, how long, O oh Lord? And what he wants us to know is that for his people, if you peel back the veil, the reality is he's always with us. He's always for us. He will bring healing and redemption and peace. God remembers. And that's reality. That's the way it really is. The man on the red horse, the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, cries out here in Zechariah, how long, O Lord? And the Lord gives answer to him as he fulfills this mission and ministry in the New Testament. There's both an eschatological fulfillment, in other words, a, a future fulfillment, sort of like the consummation, the end of all things in which this comes true. There's also a present fulfillment. I asked Andy to read Revelation chapter 1 at the beginning of the service this morning because there's some parallels there. You see a picture of Jesus in Revelation 1 as he stands among the lampstands. And we're told there that the lampstands represent the churches of God. There's, a, there's a, a clear parallel image there of the man on the red horse who's standing among the myrtle trees, the people of God, to give them words of comfort. And in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus who stands amongst the lampstands, the churches of God, the people of God, to bring them words of comfort and hope. And as Revelation unfolds, you see similar imagery. You see pictures of God sending out his armies of horses to patrol the earth. Red horses and white horses and black horses, and each of these horses has a different role, but they're patrolling the earth, but not just patrolling the earth, because in Revelation, they also judge the nations. In other words, how long, O Lord, gets answered, and they get to do their work. And bring the enemies of God, sin and death, under submission forever. And all throughout it, 
Jesus speaks words of comfort over his people and comes to them as a husband comes to his bride and prepares a wedding feast for his people. And when we get to the end of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, he establishes his kingdom of peace in the new Jerusalem. I've, my mercy has come to Jerusalem, and from it will flow, not just to the city of Jerusalem, but to all my towns, to all my villages, this mercy, this peace. And we see that fulfilled as the river of life in Revelation 21 and 22 flows from the center of the new Jerusalem, bringing life and healing, flowing blessings to every part of the new earth. This is fulfilled in Jesus. That's the good news of hope that we all have for a coming future. And yet we still cry today, don't we? How long, O oh Lord? How long? We have this reality fulfilled in Jesus. It's an already true. It's, it's, the, it's the thing in which if we pulled back the veil, we could see all of these things are, 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 are real. All of these things are certain. And yet we still have this veil that covers our eyes, don't we? We still live in the sort of already reality of that truth, but the not yet full realization of it. So what can we hold on to as the people of God today as we wait for the full consummation of this day of peace? Well, the first coming of Jesus, the revelation of the identity of the man on the red horse when he comes in the flesh, he brings about a ministry of peace for his people. You've got to hear his words because he wants us to hear these words and to cling to these words and to live by these words. Micah chapter 5 the prophecy of the coming of the incarnate Christ. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And he shall be their peace. Jesus says in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I've said these things to you, John 16, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Look at reality. I've overcome the world. even in the ravines of life, even in the dark places in which we still walk through. I traverse the, the, the valley of the shadow of death sometimes. I have these words of comfort that lead me through. Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm your peace. I've overcome the world. How is that peace experienced? That peace is experienced through the reality of the cross. As Jesus, get this, goes alone into the depths of the valley to suffer the darkness, chaos, and judgment of sin on our behalf. Why are you 
a little flock of myrtle trees in the, in the desert because Jesus has ascended into the valley for you to give you life and to bring you peace. Isaiah 53, looking forward to the cross, says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making what? Peace by the blood of the cross. Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. The rider on a red horse. By the way, a red horse is a symbol of blood. He still intercedes for us today. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. And this blessing of God flows from the Spirit through us to not only give us this peace, but to enable us to bring peace to the world. John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then he says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Again, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When the Holy Spirit begins to ascend on his people, he tells them right before in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's a, a fulfillment of what we see here in Je Zechariah chapter uh, 1, verse 17. Crowd again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So in the midst of this world of still chaos and darkness and corruption and injustice and discouragement, what are we called to do, church? You're called to still look up. See things the way they really are. See things the way they really are. There is peace for the people of God, through the people of God, to speak to the world. His day's coming. And his day has come through the cross and resurrection. I started with Psalm 73. I want to end with where the psalmist ends because remember he, he was crying out. I see all these wicked people. I see all this comfort. I see all this, 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 this stuff that makes me think, I, I know God's good in my head, but it makes my heart want to slip. And what does he do? 
looks up. Verse 16, he says this, when I thought about how to understand all this, when I, when I really comprehended what I was complaining about and what I was seeing, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I looked up. And then I discerned their end. He says this, God, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he ends by saying, but for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is one of the most hopeful passages I think I've read in Scripture in a long time. Like I said before, I'm not a guy who likes to look at pictures in the art gallery. I'm not the guy who's usually good at interpreting what they mean. But when the art expert comes, the Holy Spirit, and explains to us what he's painted for us, I take great comfort in what I've just read. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because he's with us. He's with us. Jesus has fulfilled every promise of God. And we have that hope to cling to now. We have his peace to walk through these valleys with now and know that we have a mission, not only to believe in that peace and to cling to that peace, but to share that peace with others. But we do that in hope because we know that he's coming again. And when he comes again, there will be ultimate peace. That's the Christian life. That's our hope. And God's been telling us this for ages now. And he's always faithful to keep his promises. We just have to look to Jesus to see that God is faithful. He has kept his promise. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Look to you. Return to you. And Lord, we do cry out because we, we see so much wrong in, in the world and we see so much wrong in our own, our own hearts, God. We see so much being at ease when so many are suffering and discouraged. And we do cry out, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Ride your horses. Bring full redemption. Bring peace. Bring about the new heaven and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus. We cry out, how long? And yet, Lord, we don't cry out without not just hope for the future, but hope for today. We're so grateful for your Holy Spirit's ministry in us that when Jesus came and everything he said and all of the prophecies that were fulfilled in him that said he would bring peace, they weren't, they weren't lying. They were true. So help us, Lord, to find great peace and comfort in the presence of of Christ. He is for us. And we're so grateful. Build up your people and encourage us with these truths and help us to be lights that shine the good news of that peace to those around us for your glory and for the good of the world. We pray that in Jesus' name.
Amen.